0: Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting alongside Jeffrey Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, we are going to be in New York, November 11th through the 15th, New York City. So if you are interested in what we're doing here at Focused Compounding, want to learn a little bit more about uh, either the managed accounts or the new fund that we are launching, reach out to me at info at We've already had probably you know a good handful of people that uh, we're going to get the schedule, so it is filling up fast, so definitely reach out to me. Again, that's info at focuscompounding.com. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, that helps spread the word. Um, And then of course, if you like the work we're doing, leave us a rating and review, which also helps spread the word. We're trying Mm -hmm. to hack the YouTube algorithm. Okay. Or or the uh, iTunes algorithm. algorithm, Yeah, so um, in today's video, we are going to be talking, so this week we had uh, sent out a poll on Twitter going over a bunch of different topics, really four different topics right. to see what people would be most interested um, in us talking about. Mm-hmm. And I guess the poll itself uh, turned out not that beneficial because it was pretty equal. It was it, very, it cool. was very yeah. close. Yeah. So I was like, I guess we have to do every one of these videos. But in today's video, we're going to be talking about, and if you want to get access to that poll or yeah. for future polls, maybe we should do that more often. Mm-hmm. Follow me at, at Focus Compound. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about the secret to snap. Judgments: Why ninety-five percent of stocks aren't worth your time, and how to instantly spot the five percent that are. Okay. Very catchy title, Mister Gannon. <laughs> right. Very, very catchy title. He came up with that. Okay. So let's talk about that. So ninety-five percent of the stocks aren't worth right. your time. Yeah. Um, That's
1: probably true. Yeah. And
0: I guess it's easier, probably, if you can, if we could start with how to discourage those ninety-five percent. It's probably okay. a lot easier to focus on that than to move or start with why we look for the 5%, 5% of the stocks. Okay. So let's start with the 95%.
1: Okay, so the idea for this um, podcast basically came from uh, reading a uh, Graham and Doddsville interview yeah. with Pabrai. Um, and uh, he said two things that were really interesting. One thing he said was that he's very good at making quick judgments about things. Uh, but he's not necessarily better than anyone else making uh, slower judgments about things. So that was the thing about snap judgments. But the other thing he said is basically that he looks at a hundred companies and maybe three of them are good, you know, uh, at most or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And that's true. And that, that's my experience too. You look at a lot of companies and very few. Now really when you say like
0: he he's looking at companies, I mean, what does that mean? He's looking from a bird's eye view. He's looking at like, like what we may do with quick FS the financials is that he's actually reading about the companies. I mean, what does right. that mean?
1: So it could mean, um, that you're looking at the like quickfs.net, you're looking at the financials. You're looking at like 10 year summary financials yeah. things like that. It could mean you're reading a description of the business and learning a little bit about it um in fact in that interview he talked about a stock that then we talked about and i said oh this is an overlooked stock we're not going to do it but uh i was impressed by how um it looked more attractive than i thought at first reading about it at first reading about it, i thought oh it'll make money for a few years and then it won't make money after that it's just yeah. a, a temporary um uh, shortage in their industry and their commodity producer and they'll make a ton of profits in this boom but then we looked at like um why there wouldn't be a lot of supply coming into the industry uh, or why there when in demand drop off just because the price went up a lot, right? Sure. So it's things like that. It can be things that are that quick of looking and saying, okay, well, uh, this thing's in a boom. Obviously, new supply will come in. It'll bring it back down. So that's why it should trade at a low uh, P.E. or something. So you look at that, and you go, oh, well, I can see how this is just a temporary thing, and it'll go away. Yeah. And there's lots of cases where that happens. Where you see something that looks like it has a low P.E., but you quickly eliminate because you realize this is just a temporary profit situation that's having in a moment of shortage and it won't again you know so he could be talking about things like that and i think that's true because in that interview he specifically says that stock he likes a lot is not one of the three uh out of 100 that are really good companies that you want to hold for the long term it just was really cheap he's just betting on the odds essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 so um you know we talk about the return on equity being good enough uh profitability um being consistent uh that it has is able to self-finance things like that i mean if you go through we do a lot of overlook stocks you go through the uh, pink sheets and stuff you know it's one after another that aren't self-financing companies a lot of them aren't even really up to scale to start making money so when you say self-financing i mean how do you quickly look at that um, they basically need to have free cash flow. If they don't have actual free cash flow um, because they're capital intensive and they're in the early stages of their um, growth, you know, uh, then you would have to be sure that the CapEx is mainly uh, growth CapEx. And but then, they have to be able to finance before that, yeah. And obviously probably like low leverage, stuff like that. Yeah, well, usually it'll be low leverage. I mean, you could have a good business that has high leverage, but if the business needs uh, leverage just to operate, you know, if it borrowed to be able to do this, then it's probably not a good business, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And
0: then I guess to, you know, take it a step further. I mean, so, you know, when you're looking at these companies and you are looking for things to disqualify, I mean, mm-hmm. what is it that sticks out? Because a lot of times the best investments don't screen well. Okay. That's you true. know, and you yeah. can look at NACO, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't know if NACO would have screened well when right. we originally looked at it because the business in the past is not going to be, wasn't going to be the situation going forward for them, right? It was a spinoff. Right. They were spinning off Hamilton Beach Brands. So this was going to be a totally different business going forward. Yeah. So, how do you, I guess, kind of look past that if it will and does that come from learning just about the business and yeah i think and this is what i always say about jeff i think your ability to sort of generate the narrative Mm -hmm. behind the situation is better than a lot of people
1: well i think that's what uh was talking about you know and you don't get that necessarily from doing getting a screenshot or a bird's eye view of the company i feel like no, you read about the company for like five minutes focusing on certain specific things, which is what I did in that case. There was a write-up of a company. Uh, the company was GrafTech. And um, I read the write-up. And a lot of, so I read the write-ups at Value Investors Club, at Corner Berkshire and Fairfax, wherever. And a lot of times they go, mm, it, based on the write-up, I don't really believe what they said is necessarily yeah. true. I don't have a lot of high confidence in it. But sometimes you do, you read something. I mean, the example I give all the time is I was reading about George Risk which is a net net. At the time, it was a net net. And I didn't know anything about the company, or anything. I had its 10-year financials, but I was just reading it. And in the interview, the CEO said something really weird, um, which changed my view of the company a lot. He said that their um, material costs, so what they were paying for the materials that they were then putting labor into to turn into a final product, were higher than what their competitors sold the final product for. So, when I read that, that just, I mean, like everything else I read was insignificant compared to that fact that he had just said, because I knew they had really big market share in what they did. They're probably the biggest supplier to the biggest distributor, you know, in their industry. So, the fact that you could buy a raw material and pay more than your competitors were selling the finished product for meant that obviously the price of the finished product just wasn't that significant. And then I learned more about it and why that might be true, you know, was it a relatively small percentage of the final product that it was? Are other things important like is customization important? Is on-time delivery important? Is, you know, whatever. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about this with the 10K, reading a 10K, what things you need to see that jump out at you, yeah. you know, and to focus on those things. Um, and that's what I'm talking about in terms of like making a snap judgment about the business is that you have to pick up on those things really quickly about whether they're, you know, um, whether they have a competitive advantage. Uh, Buffett talks about this a lot because remember, um, Buffett decides to make an acquisition often like five minutes after hearing about it. Yeah. Right. And so he has to read about the business, hear what they're saying about it, if they send him a letter or something like that, and then decide, I want to buy this. Well, the way he can do that is because. It's sort of like chess players or something. So the world's best slow playing chess players are often some of the world's best uh, at, at super speed chess, like blitz chess and stuff. They're not as good playing really fast as they're really slow. But if you're good at really slow chess, you're also going to be pretty good at really fast chess too. And the same thing is going to be happening with like someone like Buffett. If he studies a company for five hours or five days or whatever, he may be very good at it. But if you're very good over five hours and five days, you become very good in five minutes at mm-hmm. looking at things you have to because you've seen so many things you pick up on those patterns you yeah, know sure. what things to focus in on immediately and like what things to doubt and stuff that a company will say you know now what about like
0: um you know they say if for example he thinks there's some sort of catastrophic risk he's just gone like it's disqualified right Buffett's that Right. Way, yeah. so mm-hmm. what are your i guess thoughts on there or from that standpoint to disqualify the 95% of companies that you look at
1: yeah, the I mean, the reason why we disqualify almost 95% is competition. Much more so I'm than sorry, 95%. Did I say 75? Uh, I don't know. 90, 95, yeah. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> but is competition. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, when I'm looking at a company, the main thing that I'm thinking is, why won't their— um, you know why won't their suppliers charge more if they start to have good profits? Why won't their customers demand less if their prices rise? Yeah. Um, and why aren't there ways to substitute the product between them or a comp- or a competitor like a substitute product or an actual uh, competitor that does the same thing? And that's just the way you think right away. And so certain things jump out to you, and in terms of whether um, it, it's possible that you can keep making profits that way, most companies are going to be, in my view, most companies. Are going to be undone not by mistakes that they make themselves or something like that, but simply just competition. Sure. Yeah. They can't protect themselves from their microeconomic realities that they have. So you want to learn really quickly whether there's some stuff going on that protects them. And it's not fair, usually. Yeah. So companies will talk to you in a way that makes more sense with what they can control and stuff. But like I said before about like supermarkets or something, the best supermarkets are usually just those that happen to be in the best places in the beginning. Um, There's some operational things, but you don't have to be the best operator. If you happen to have built a large supermarket over time in some place that got really built up, then you're lucky. So if you were one of the first ones to build one in northern New Jersey or in southern California or something, you expanded it over the years, and now it's really valuable. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: If you did the same thing in Kansas, it's not. And you could be a better operator of a, of a grocer in Kansas, and it would never have gotten to be a huge scale. You'd never make a ton of money on it. It's just the realities of where you were located and the scarcity of the ability to come in and compete with you because of restrictions on um, available land and sure. stuff. You know? And it's the same thing in a lot of these. If you happen to get the um, build-up, the first things that got network effects and things early on, then, you you know, you can still have those advantages. And Buffett is that way with, you know, newspapers and things. With He talks about survival of the fattest and all mm-hmm. that. He can see very quickly that, you know, he bought into newspapers and he knew other new newspapers in the town would end up out of business. Was it Geico that he said, I could give you...
0: I forget the number it was but like 100 billion dollars and you couldn't replicate it. What company did you say that
1: about? I think you said that about Coke probably. Maybe it was Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah, it probably was Coca-Cola. Yeah, it's probably Coke. Yeah. Um yeah, and that's it's a good example because you have to recognize that when you learn about the company whether mm-hmm. that that's likely to be true. Um there's I guess a lot of people like to use sort of theories, sorts of things about uh, Buffett talks in terms of moats. A lot of people sort of like to use economic theory, and we talk about that with like um, talking about whether the com- what the company's barriers to entry are and barriers to. Exit, actually, we were talking the other day about that where I was saying one of the most important things in the industry is barriers to exit. People don't talk about it enough. We were talking about, like, steel. And I was saying a huge problem is that they don't shut down this, uh, that people won't shut down a steel mill fast enough. So you end up with too much capacity in it and things like that. And um, you, Can you, you, could you explain that? Because I thought that was, I've never
0: heard somebody talk about barriers to exit. And we talked about Right, well, barriers to exit are day. very important. Yeah. It has to do with cycles. And, and what
1: does that mean? Yeah. Well, basically, what it means is that, so you have this problem You'll notice in, – well, in general in business, one thing you should keep in mind is that like when you learn economic theory, they'll tell you that if a company can make a better return in something else, it'll get out of what it's doing now and go into that. Yep. In reality, that's not how it works. Companies will tend to invest more and more in the thing that they're already doing. So they'll try to make a good investment but in what they're doing. So if they're a textile company, they'll try to make investments in textile stuff and things around it. Um, what they should do sometimes is close stuff down. And when the example I was giving about a steel mill or something is they're not going to close it down as long as they get any um, cash flow coming from it month to month. It's only once they start bleeding cash. And in some cases, they'll have to bleed cash for a while and believe it's going to keep happening before they actually will shut something down. But they made a decision to build a steel mill originally. It looked smart. But for various reasons about cycles and things, they misjudged it. And now it's in a situation where it's earning a poor return on equity. Mm -hmm. To raise the return equity for all the others in the industry, the thing to do is to reduce capacity that you have. So you should shut some down, right? But you're not going to because you're still getting money now because your sunk cost, right, that you had in it doesn't matter. So you're earning a poor return on that sunk cost. But as long as you're still getting some money from it, you're likely to keep it open too long. Yeah. And, yeah.
0: and I like the example because we were going through just cycles. Mm-hmm. And we talked, this was actually last night. It was like a long yeah. conversation. You were talking about chickens. Yes. And how they do it in the chicken and chicken industry. Mm-hmm. And do you wanna explain that? Because I thought that was pretty interesting on like how they, I guess, tried to control the cycle a little
1: bit more. Yeah. So we don't talk much about cycles here, but what I was saying is a cycle is always a timing thing. Yeah. So there has to be an imbalance, which has to be that someone misjudged something. So there's some reason why supply and demand are coming into balance, and it's but it has to continue for a while. And the cycle will be worse the longer it continues. So my point was just that a chicken cycle is short because of the amount of time you have from when you have to breed more chickens, you have to hatch more chickens to the time yeah. in which you're slaughtering them is yeah. short. So you're gonna have a short cycle And actually, there was an article in, I think, Bloomberg a while ago that really interested me because it gave information about the idea that um different chicken producers who sort of control the hatcheries usually they don't own them but they have control over the yeah, yeah, contracts yeah. um were basically sharing data with each other what they would do is they'd subscribe to the service they provide like plant level data which is crucial and then they would as a result get the information from their competitors that way which is sort of a way around it's a way of trying to use like um your uh, saying that it's a freedom of speech thing, that's yeah, just yeah, a publication, yeah. but really you're you're colluding, you're sharing the data. Because if competitors in an industry like steel or something could all share their plant-level data, then they could make decisions that would be better for them long-term in terms of managing capacity and things uh-huh. like that. And so you could smooth out the cycle. And actually, the thing with chicken producers is that it's it, the inherent business economics are really good, but the cycle's really bad. Yeah, yeah. So if you had one chicken producer that knew what they were doing in terms of controlling su- uh, supply to match demand well over time to smooth out the cycle, then you could have really good returns because it's actually a very nice business in terms of the the product economics. It's just the the fact that you have this really bad cycle in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and we talked about cycles in terms of what things would be really long and what things would be really short, and it's really a question of how quickly you can respond to that. And that, and obviously the chicken cycle could be really short because like i guess
0: the life cycle of an actual chicken yeah. is is maybe a couple months as opposed to pigs or whatever where you raise them for i don't know eight months to a year or whatever that is and yeah
1: and so the important thing in terms of like making judgments about companies that way is the cyclical stuff actually relates very much to competition yeah so the reason why that's happening is because of how quickly you can change your competitive situation that way so how quickly they can increase supply or something whereas in some industries you can't do it very quickly and then you're much better protected now over time in some industries Although you can't do it quickly, you will do it eventually, and then you have these really big cycles that are bad, yeah, yeah. and that's a problem. But in other cases, you can easily predict it, and then you have much better returns. And actually, it's really important. Like, like, um, I know people don't believe this, but non-cyclical-type companies are going to vastly outperform cyclical-type companies, other things equal. And I know people think, well, like they should. it's just easier, it's safer, whatever is why cyclical, uh, non-cyclical companies are better. But it's actually because they can be more efficient. They can um, uh, make more money, just in terms of everything they do, because there's just less misjudgment that way. It's just the the market for diapers is reliable in a way that th- that the market for chickens is not, you know. And so it's just easier to do that. Well, how so? well because you're not gonna have that same cycle happening so for instance uh, giving's i mean we i don't want to get too complicated in terms of market for diapers and stuff but so market for diapers is very predictable year over year with population sure. and things like yeah, that yeah. okay fine and then you have the issue you also have certain other constraints like you have shelf space constraints and stuff right so you have that but you also have that in chicken but a big difference has to do with um supply how quickly you can increase and whether you would and um i mean i won't get all into it actually my mom worked in serving the industry the tissue paper industry yeah, which she yeah. goes into things like that and um there are reasons why they would be very slow to build a whole new planet to do things like that so they just they're not going to do that um i i mean i, say, I think i've said, given this example before but um there was uh i remember very clearly that in the housing boom there was a real demand for a product, a, a cheap way of making things instead of using um, uh, better building material, that could be used by um, getting paper companies to change over some production for you. And the paper companies were willing to change over the production temporarily to do it, but they weren't willing to build any plants to do it. And the reason why is that unlike the home builders who thought that the, who were much less concerned about the cycle thing, yeah. the um, paper companies were very aware of what happened when you had too much capacity. Like, it's sometimes in newsprint and Stuff. they had way too much capacity and so you have these really bad cycles where you have really poor returns for a long time and so they would to do it and they would like they weren't willing to build a new plant even though returns were really great yeah and that's an example of like that w- cycle would have been worse if they had built it but they knew not to build it whereas people who were building materials for homes hadn't seen enough cycles in homes it, they they thought like a lot of people that it was a very reliable sort of industry and they you know obviously cause that cycle to be very, very bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the thing that you see when you look at these things, like talking about cycles is because you you should see in many cases, just by reading about a company, whether it's likely to have these kinds of cycles or not.
0: I mean, you could really, even by looking at the financials, right? If you see like yes. these the earnings per share just go like crazy one year. I mean, you could really see it from theirs, right? right? Like the volatility and EPS. You
1: can. And that's important, except um, sometimes you sometimes it's not visible in there yet or like um like home builders a good example or something if you looked at the past like anything related to home construction stuff that way if you looked at the past it would look much more reliable but then you're going to have a future that was much worse. And uh, home builders are pretty cyclical all the time. But some other things, like um, we bought Hunter Douglas after the cycle, after it, its downturn and everything, it would have been very easy to misjudge that and to think that it wasn't very cyclical because yeah. in the past it hadn't been very cyclical. But it was going to be because it was, you know, having this um, uh, crazy cycle. You know, but of course you could see it in that you had this sudden increase mm-hmm. in your results. Sure. But yeah. it, that's the thing that get, people get confused about is a lot of times when you read a write-up or something, people will explain that this is because of some permanent long-term change yeah, yeah, in the yeah, business yeah, yeah. or in demand for it in the industry or whatever and you're thinking well is this really a cyclical a temporary sort of thing yeah And then I guess to bring it back right so mm-hmm. I guess a good way to uh, disqualify companies
0: that could be more cyclical in nature is yeah. to I guess you know do all the stuff that we look for but also what look for companies with you know long-term contracts and stuff like that Sure it can you be know, you talked about um, you know if there's serious competition look for Monopolies, duopolies,
1: Mm -hmm. oligopolies. Yeah, Yeah. so a few things. One, which we talked about, is that you're going to you have to be much more careful about anything that uh, will cause a big response, either in the input or the output which is going to, so price changes, it's responsiveness to price changes basically. So if you're reading something and you think, if a small price change will cause a big change in behavior of my supplier yeah. or a big change in behavior of my customer, then I have to be very careful. So why you want, you want to generally look for situations in which a change in the price of your, whatever item you have is not going to cause a big change in the behavior of the customer. And sometimes it's it'll be, be things where you can't even really tell. Yeah, we were like, talk, we used yeah. the
0: brand, or the, uh, the, example of Haynes Brands,
1: right? Where yeah. We were talking about cotton. Yes. And then what do they do? They use that to make underwear. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and there was a huge increase in the cotton price. And so the question would be whether that would continue and those sorts of things. And there was some concern from people looking at the stock. It might just be short term concern, but it was just concern that, okay, well, prices of cotton are, go incredibly high. Doesn't that mean that these companies are gonna make a lot less money in the future? And I would say, no, it doesn't. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. They'll switch to using something else, or cotton prices will go down, or you know both things will happen. But what the things that they're doing, are, per- there's no reason why people need cotton to yeah. be the thing that underwear is made out of. There's plenty of other things that you could get sure, it from. Sure, yeah. And the main things that they're doing are not really that much tied to cotton. Now, yeah. if you're a cotton farmer, then yes, it, the cotton price matters a lot. But this is a temporary issue. And then you should have looked at it and seen that it's a temporary issue for a clothing manufacturer something who's using cotton to have that uh-huh. problem. You know, There'll be other ways around it. If the world suddenly ran out of cotton, it's not not like all underwear making companies would go out of business, yeah. yeah they yeah, would yeah. figure out a way to Something stay in else. business and
0: their economics probably wouldn't be all that different, totally, you know. Yeah, so what let's go to the five percent. And, and everyone listening, yeah. we, we have zero agenda when okay. we do these podcasts, yeah. we, we know the title <laughs> and we just say we're just going to go down a bunch of different mm-hmm. rabbit holes, which is okay. great, I think, because it produces a good show. Um, so that was interesting, but yeah. I just thought I should say, like, we <laughs> don't script any of this, we know okay. the title generally, what we're going to talk about, and we just kind of let it flow from there. Right. Um, but okay, so let's go to the five percent. How yes. how to quickly I guess look at something that is interesting
1: where you're going right. to say okay we should probably look at this a little bit more like what is that okay that, for sure you? so like the ones I just said so uh, let's think in terms of suppliers uh, competing um, products and you know substitutes and competitors. And then also your customers, right? So any product where if you raise the price on your customer, uh, they wouldn't respond much yeah. in any way. That, that's something that you, if you see that, that's something you circle in the table. Or almost like they're forced to continue doing business with you. They might force to be continued doing business with you, or it's such a tiny amount of the end product or especially things where it's a tiny amount of the end product, and they think it's important for them. And the best thing is when it is it, when they <laughs> when it's basically ineffable in some way. It's hard for them to quantify the the benefit that they get. So from like it's it. a, like almost like a byproduct of it. Well, well, we talked about this yeah. yesterday
0: with GraphTech. Mm-hmm. So maybe explain what you mean by where it's such a, a small oh, well, percentage. Oh, so in the case they were it. talking
1: about with GraphTech is that what they make is uh, a product that. Um, steel companies would need to buy to keep their plants running and yet the the report that was written up about it was saying that it's even at very high prices only about five percent of the total cost of the steel that will be produced using it yeah so it's not a big um, factor and yet it would stop the production of steel so you would think that the buyer would be relatively insensitive to price increases up to the point where actually it made sense to like shut down production or something which would be an incredibly high point so that would mean the price could keep going up for a long time and it wouldn't stop them there are other products where that's not true. Um, if it's a really, you know, if you're taking a product and 80% of the cost of what you're going to uh, manufacture from it is what they're buying from you, right? If they're basically just refining it a little bit and then selling it, then they're going to stop very fast so if, if there's any increase in the price of the product. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Got it. So, okay. So 5% of the
1: uh, things that or mm-hmm. qualities you look for for the 5%. Yeah. Okay. So that's so, one of them. The other yeah. one would be if there's no substitute, there's no other way to do what they're doing um so they own
0: the market type of thing it's
1: a monopoly type thing yeah sure so and, and they don't have uh, there's not realistic competitors i've talked many times about like bwx technologies looked at that thought about are there realistic ways to have to power things like um submarines and uh aircraft carriers without using nuclear not really there's no one in the US that's a reliable alternative to Babcock uh, to B2X And then, you know, are you really going to buy from someone, you know, if there was a you could have a competitor that's suppl- if they were supplying another nuclear Navy, but if the US was using a supplier and China decided they want a nuclear Navy that was using one supplier, would they really both use the same supplier? And my thought was no, they're never going to do that. So uh, for security reasons and stuff. So I just thought that it was very safe that there wasn't a substitute that way. And many of the companies we have work that way, where we think that a company would be fair, that um, they're unlikely to substitute is an important part of it. If they're very likely to substitute, that's very scary and that's most companies. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take much to get a competitor, uh, to get a customer to buy something else. And that's really big when it's like a transactional type thing. So you were talking about like contracts. Contracts are great, but even better than contracts are habits. So if someone is habitually buying something without thinking about every time they go to the store or something, that's like better than a contract. You know? Even, I guess, relating
0: it back to Mm GraphTech in that report, he had wrote up um, if they cancel... Those contracts, right? Yeah. They would be, uh, it's like a 60 to 7%. Yeah, very high. Contract c- termination, termination fee. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So you yeah. kind of create inertia in every Yeah, and that model. was
1: also an indication there where the customers are happy to agree to a fixed purchase thing um, where they would, ha- for a few years, they wouldn't be able to raise prices, right, on them, but they would have to buy that. Um, like I mentioned, George Risk, that similar thing happened in, not that George Risk promised a certain supply or anything, but they've raised their prices after not raising them for a while. And their biggest customer, I, assume it was the customer that asked for it, not George Risk, um, asked them to sign an agreement uh, to fix the price for several years out, um, which can be an indication when a customer is eager to do that, that you have a lot of um, price and power and stuff. Sure. Because the reason why I suggest that um, is not so much that they're trying to control the price. It could be. Like those companies could have been, I'm worried the price will go even higher, but I don't believe that. What I think they were really doing is trying to make sure they had a secure supply. And I think that was the same case in like George Risk and stuff. They became concerned that um, they might not have a constant supply of something, or or that the price could keep getting raised on them a little bit too. But yeah, whenever they're eager to sign that sort of deal, and we've had many things that have contracts. But but yeah, brands and things are just as good that way in terms of if someone keeps buying them just out of habit. Yeah, uh, you know the things that we've talked about before that you don't want are things where the customer is very well educated about it. They think a lot about it. They can say no for a long time before buying it. They can put off the purchase. You know whatever. I mean so. There are companies that have very strong competitive positions in, in um, like washing machines and stuff, but washing machines are a worse business than chewing gum for the reasons that I just explained, which are like the the extent to which someone thinks about the competing products and the substitutes and things like that for a washing machine is just really high um, versus they just don't think at all about what price they're really paying for gum. They don't compare across, like, if I buy a lot of gum here, if I buy a little bit here, what am I doing? They don't know how much gum they're really chewing. Uh, they don't think that much about the competing products or any of that sort of stuff. They mm-hmm. just, once they start doing something, they think, this is pretty good. I'll keep, just keep doing it. They don't even necessarily think it's the very best. yeah, But it's good enough. Whereas with a, uh, with a washing machine, they take a lot of time to think about it and to make the decision do you think that's purchase. because it's a larger purchase yeah it's a larger and less frequent purchase and that's the problem larger less frequent purchases are usually much worse it's kind of like businesses. cars for example yeah and we've talked about that car dealers are a horrible business except to the extent of everything around it i mean car dealers only work because they for various reasons they have a very low cost of capital um they're Uh, manufacturers of cars, car makers need to push the product out and so they do certain things to to help the dealers basically and there's some other things related to that and you also have good collateral in cars that it's going to be turned into cash pretty quickly and stuff it's easy to borrow against. So their financing is cheap so that's their one advantage. And then the other advantage that they have is that once they get you there, to talk about an expensive car that you want to um, leave with, if they keep you there for a while, they can then sell you a warranty. They can get a commission on a loan. They can get a commission on insurance things. They can get all that. And that's going to produce a lot of their profit. And in many car dealers, that's going to be half their profit, their gross profit or something. Mm-hmm. If you do the math, without that, they would be running a EBIT loss that's pretty meaningful yeah so their entire return is coming from selling that stuff if they just were like cross
0: selling you, and like the services and everything that comes yeah. from the dealership but it's a
1: big advantage that they have because you came to buy a car you were focused on the car and you became reluctant over time to walk away from a deal yeah yeah and then you became more susceptible to take little add-ons and things that seem small versus the price of the car and that can be m- more complex less transparent things like that you know
0: maybe we should do a podcast
1: on auto (laughs) dealerships maybe but uh yeah so but when you read about it that's part of the problem because like when you read about a car dealer or something you think oh this must be a really bad business right away. I mean, you think about that if you think about how it really works, but as you learn how it works, you think, okay, well, you know, you pick up those sorts of things and that's how you can make a judgment about it. And then also people should go back to our
0: 10k video and and listen to when you describe the business section, Yeah, because the things that Jeff, uh, uh, that you look for to really tell you a lot about the business, if we compete on price, okay, then that's probably may not be a thing that, you know, you want to go into it really, they should really lay out, um, you know, their whole business in there and just the little nuances, I guess, that you look for that tell you all like give you the big picture, I guess you could say. Yeah.
1: And you should do what Buffett does, which is you uh, he wants as much past financials as possible and yeah. then a description of the business. So go to someplace like quickfs.net, go someplace where you get the 10 year financials, see them and read the business description. Yeah. And those two things together in a lot of cases, you're going to be able to tell whether it's one of the 95 percent of the 5 percent. You won't yeah. come to a final decision, but you can sort them into those two groups. Cool.
0: Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself. We are going to be in New York like I said, November 11th through the 15th. So if you're interested to learn more about our managed accounts or the fund that we are launching, reach out to me, info at focuscompounding.com. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, follow along, thumbs this video up, leave us a rating review, check out all of our other content. I wanna thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself, and we will see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to FocusCompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at FocusCompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along.